Good morning. It is a great and glorious day because it is October. The best month of the year. The best month of the year. Why not? Oh, no, 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 no. See, we're having an argument over birthdays here. See, because my birthday is on Wednesday. So my husband's birthday is on, on Monday. So we got birthday, birthday. And then, you know, fall, all the fun, Halloween, good weather, October. Thank you. Point made. Anyway, hello. I am Allison. If you don't know me, if I haven't met you, I feel like I'm echoey. Yeah. I'm going to let Brooke figure that out. Um, I am the discipleship pastor here at Love Chapel Hill, which means I am in charge of small groups and bands and fun discipleship things and also like love meeting you and having conversations if you want to talk about things. Um, Yeah, that's me. Um, And it's going to be my birthday this week. So today, um, I have the great privilege of preaching on Genesis 2. I'm very excited about it. Um, And this is probably the last time for a while you'll see me up here because, as many of you know, our children's pastor, Dominique, is on maternity leave with her little baby, who I got to meet yesterday and hold, and he's so cute. And um, I'm stepping in with the kids' ministry for her, so I will mostly be up there for the next few months. So, um, hi, nice to see you. See you again in a few months. (laughs) Just kidding. But I'm very thankful um, for Pastor Justin actually stepped in to be with the babies this morning so that um, I could be here um, because Dominique ended up having her baby a couple of weeks early and we were scrambling. So (laughs) thank you, Pastor Justin. Um, Okay, so we're going to be preaching on Genesis 2. And we're doing the first three pages of Genesis in this series. So Joel preached on Genesis 1 last week. This week we're doing Genesis 2, page 2. If you didn't get a little handout thing, we have it all written out in the handout and places for you to take notes. They're on that podium right up there by the exit. So if you get up at any point during my sermon, I'm just going to assume you want notes. Okay? Um, but we're opening every, um, every week of this series with this Genesis prayer. And so if you will stand and join me in reading this, it'll be up on the screen. All right. Lord, lead us to embrace your story of love, rescue, and redemption for all of our beloved creation. Open our hearts to feel your everlasting loving pursuit to lead us to where heaven and earth align. We are your church, your people, exploring the mystery of you found in the beginning of your word. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so last week when Joel did Genesis 1, he went over the creation narrative, the seven days, and as we saw, the seventh day actually ended in chapter 2. So um, he went through verse 3. So we're actually going to be picking up today in Genesis 2, verse 4. Just want to let you know that so you don't think I'm skipping anything. Um, So verse 4 reads, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created 
when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Wait, hold on. Didn't we just cover creation? I mean, you know, the seven-day thing. Yeah, we did. Um, there are, in fact, two separate creation stories in Genesis, back to back. And there are some differences between them. So for some of you, this might actually be new information. And um, if you've only ever known a literal reading of the creation story, it can be kind of hard to reconcile this. Um, so yeah, I, I love last week Joel presented this call um, to really lean into our, our questions and confusion over the creation narratives um, and, and to ask those questions and wrestle with God over them um, and to bring them here. Um, unfortunately, so much of Christian culture um, in America and beyond has urged believers away from that sort of questioning. Um, calling it doubt and questions, a lack of belief, right? And in doing so, and Joel did a good job of it, talking about this last week too, but in doing so, they're really asking the Bible to be something it was never meant to be and do something it was never meant to do, especially a lot of these Old Testament texts. Um, so every time I drive out to my parents' house, um, they live in Lenore, North Carolina, which is out west, so it's down 40 somewhere near Greensboro. There's this big billboard by a church there, and maybe you've seen it. It says, for every question, the Bible has an answer. And every time I see it, it bothers me a little bit because, yes, the Bible has lots of answers to our questions, absolutely. But it can only answer the questions it was written to answer. And sometimes it feels like it leaves us with more questions than answers. And I know that this can be frustrating, but the good news is God calls us to wonder in the mysteries of our faith, and God meets us there in our wondering. I have experienced this firsthand. So I encourage you, if encountering these things in scripture that don't make sense or these questions um, is tripping you up, just to not be afraid of those questions or of your doubts. Um, we welcome those here. But today, I do hope to give you some answers. <laughs> uh, so why are there two different creation narratives? Why would the author of Genesis, which is traditionally believed to be Moses, separate these? Well, most of scripture for a very, very long time was passed down in an oral tradition. Uh, not even written, right? Um, passed on through generations and generations all the way back to Moses and beyond, right? In fact, the earliest written version of Genesis is believed to not have been written until the 5th or 6th century BC, uh, which is hundreds of years after Moses. And scholars believe, when they look at Genesis and take it apart, and especially in the Hebrew, um, that Genesis is actually, and a lot of the, the Old Testament, the first five books, are a compilation of different ancient sources, both oral and written, kind of brought together to present the story. Um, and the Bible nerd in me would just love to get into all that right now. We could talk about the Yahweh source and all of that, but uh, at some point I actually need to talk about the scripture I was assigned, so... <laughs> The point I do want to make um, is that in answering the question of why are there two creation narratives, the simple answer is that there were likely 
two different traditional tellings of the story passed down. And the author, whoever compiled them, um, thought it was important to include them both. Both offer insight and truth into the nature of God, humanity, and the world. So let's look at this account in Genesis 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. We'll pause there. I promise I'll move faster in a minute, but there's just a lot here. <laughs> so a couple things to note. First, um, the beginning, um, it says, it calls the Lord God. It says the Lord God. In the Hebrew, this is written as Yahweh Elohim. And in the first creation narrative we just read, it's just Elohim. So why does this matter, right? So the name Yahweh, which we sang, I love, that was picked for our first song today, we sang about the name of Yahweh, is actually the personal name for God that is given to the people of Israel. It calls forth that covenantal relationship that God has with God's people. So it's really cool to see in this creation narrative in the beginning, it's not just God, it's it's the Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim, right? Not just some cosmic creator God, but it's connected specifically to the God of Israel. And I think that just sets the tone for the rest of this story, um, especially as it continues into Genesis 3. We're going to see a lot of themes of Israel's story um, in this creation narrative. Second, unlike how the creation began in the first chapter of Genesis with uh, the spirit of God hovering over the waters, here we have dry land in need of water, a desert, much like what the people of Israel wondered for 40 years with Moses, much like what the people of this general region encounter on a daily basis. And then in verse 6, it speaks of water springing up from the ground in this dry desert landscape. And that type of water source would be necessary for sustaining life. Entire settlements and towns would be based around these springs of water. And there are also a lot of important things that happen in Genesis as we go on around springs of water. In chapter 16, we have the story of Hagar, who is fleeing for her life, and she stops at the spring of water and encounters God there, and God blesses her. Later, Jacob meets his wife, Rachel, beside a well, which is a more controlled form of a desert spring, I'd say. And Moses, when fleeing Pharaoh in Egypt, encounters the daughters of the priest of Midian, also at a well, and ends up being taken in by then, which is an important part of his story. So this spring of water rising up from dry land is something that the author wants us to pay attention to. And it will continue to show up in the story of God's people. It's a sign that God is at work. So let's read on a bit more. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. It runs through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So I'm going to talk about the creation of man a bit later, but first, Eden. What is it? What do we know about it based on these verses? So Eden um, means literally in the east. So it could be a directional term. Wait, east? I don't know where east is. Um, it also, there's also this ancient saying um, that could be another kind of meaning um, where like if you say from the east, it means like a really, really long time ago. So, and then there's another a third meaning for Eden, which is to delight, which kind of seems to fit the scene. So is it just symbolic for something, or is, it, is Eden a real place? Well, the way the texts go, it makes it seem like at least the author believed it to be a real place. Um, he describes these rivers coming out of Eden, and a lot of them we can geographically place, um, some of them... Scholars have argued about what it means, where it is, because some of these lands they mention, like, we, we don't know. Um, but based on basically where they think they've pinpointed them and where they are, the cool thing about it is what we do know about these rivers from Eden is that um, the, they each at least run through a place that is significant in Israel's history. So... Um, Pishon is linked to Egypt, the Tigris and Euphrates, which might be the only two you recognize, um, to Babylon and Assyria, and then the Gihon to Jerusalem. So that's a bit cool. Uh, so let's look a little bit closer at this description of Eden, though. We see it's a dry land, but it has a river watering it. And from that source of life, a garden manifests with ample foliage, an arborist dream, it sounds like, right? Representing God's provision for the created man. Um, there is trees everywhere, both, it says, for enjoyment, which is really cool. It was pleasing to the eye, like that mattered to God. And for sustenance, it was good for food, functional and beautiful. Um, one difference between this creation um, narrative and the first one in Genesis that we went over last week, is that here, God creates man first before plants and animals, even though there are already trees. It's interesting. So there's trees and man. Um, so we have dry land, then water, a garden, man. Um, so when I read this, I think, to me, it says, like, instead of 
like in the first narrative where it's um, it's waterland, sky, day, night. I don't remember the order. I'm sorry. <laughs> Plants, animals, and then humans. So instead of the world being created for humanity, here humanity is created for the world. Because as it notes in there, the land needed someone to care for it and make it a fruitful garden. In verse 15, it says, God put the man in the garden to take care of it. So working the land was a part of humanity's responsibility even before the fall. While Eden is often described as some paradise we lost, and in many ways it was, it was also a place that we as humanity served God in creation. And I think that's just really important to note. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go into the whole tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil much today because it's going to play a bigger role in the story in Genesis 3. There's a lot of theories about what this represents and what it means. Um, it is interesting to note that the only, it's not the tree of life that the Adam can't eat from. It's just the, the other tree. So that's kind of interesting. I, I, on my whatever reading of this, when I was preparing to preach, was like, oh, I never noticed that. Okay, but I do want to spend some time talking about the creation of man and then woman. This is going to be fun. So, in chapter one, God creates humanity last, and it just tells us that God created them all at once. And here we have a little bit of a story. We get a more in-depth view of this, right? The story focuses on the creation of one man and one woman, and then follows them into the next chapter. So the creation of man begins in chapter 7. It says, The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Man is formed from the dust. We kind of call forth this imagery on Ash Wednesday every year where we put the ashes on our head, say, you, you came from ash to ash, you will return. Um, is also reminiscent of dust. It's a, a similar thing. But interestingly enough in this story, it's not really dust, it's mud, because we have the, the dry land and then water. And what happens when you mix you know, dry land and water? You get mud, right? So it's really being formed from this mud. Um, and here the word for formed is the same root word in Hebrew that we'll find in Jeremiah 18 for a potter. I remember the story of the potter at the potter's wheel forming. So this idea of being formed or shaped from essentially mud kind of elicits this same imagery of the creative work of the potter forming, which is just really beautiful. And then God gives God's own breath to the man, the breath of life, so that he could become a living being, which is just really cool to think about. Later in this narrative, um, when God creates animals, which are also called living beings, the same action is not mentioned as part of their creation, but humanity is God-breathed. So this God-breathed mud man is created and then placed in this garden to work the land and everything is provided for him but something is missing 
So verse 18 continues this story. It says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. <coughs> Sorry. Okay, so first of all, where did the name Adam suddenly come from, right? We're just like a man and suddenly we're like, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Oh, okay, he has a name. Well, in Hebrew, the word Adam can be translated as either man or proper name Adam, uh, depending on the context. Um, so sometimes it's just translated as a man. Sometimes it's a man named Adam. Um, there's a presence of an article that might help dictate which is being used. Um, but the word can also just mean human being in general without having a gender attached to it. And we see it used that way back in Genesis 1:27 when humanity is created. So honestly, the way I like to think about this and understand the naming of Adam is that this man was just given a generic name to serve narrative purpose. I mean, after all, he's just kin. I mean, Adam. That's a, that's a Barbie movie reference, if you didn't know. In all seriousness, though, <laughs> I don't want to linger too much on the particulars of the linguistics here, but um, it's some really cool stuff to look into if you're a nerd like me and into that. But in verse 18, God says, it is not good for a man to be alone or for man to be alone. And again, I think this is a place where we can take that Hebrew Adam as also just meaning hum human in general, right? Because though this narrative separates out man and woman in its telling of creation, the important truth that it is communicating to us is that we were made for each other. We were made for, for community and for connection. And this term here where he says, I will make him a helper suitable. Helper suitable in Hebrew is ezer konegdo. And while in English the term helper or help might imply subordination in some instances, ezer doesn't have that connotation at all. In fact, ezer is often used to speak of God's own actions to help the people of Israel. And it, it, it's usually seen as like a timely help, much needed. Um, usually with military action, interestingly enough. So used to describe the actions of God and God who is certainly not subordinate to us. And then konegdo, which means like but different from and still equal to. 
We could translate this phrase more as a necessary ally in life or a helper matching him. And to help someone does not imply that the helper either is stronger than the helped. It simply means that the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. So it makes me think of the verse in Ecclesiastes, which maybe you've heard before, where it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. God puts the man in the garden to work the land, but he needs help. We need help. We need each other for the work of the kingdom. And that's the point, really. So the woman is created from the rib of the man, pulled out from his side while he is sleeping. She's a part of him, pulled from his side to stand beside him. It's a shame that this passage is so often used to justify a patriarchal understanding of the world because so much of the language here and the nuance is telling us that that is not the intended nature of things. Instead, God made us different but equal to each other. We are meant to help each other in our mutual task of caring for the land. And I love that I, as a female pastor, get to be the one to preach this to you. And I know that as you are sitting here and not walking out and discuss, that you're probably on my side with this. But. So Adam's response to his new companion is written in this beautiful poetic stanza. It's like rhyming in the Hebrew. But it says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So another Hebrew word for man and the one used here is ish. And the woman is Isha. So it has this similar linguistic thing happening like with man and woman in English where they're linked. And this saying, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, um, while in this instance is kind of more literal, bone of my bone, um, in scripture and in and, and, and the ancient world, it's also a familiar way of describing kinship. To say someone is bone of my bone would mean they're related to you. And indeed, the next passage then elaborates and says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Creation narratives serve a purpose. We can't forget that, right? Joel touched on this a bit last week, too. The purpose is to explain why things are the way they are. Why do people get married and join together and make new families? Well, the author takes this beautiful story and this need for companionship and the creation of man and woman and ex to explain that. And um, this idea of two becoming one flesh also echoes those earlier ideas of equality between the man and the woman. They are one. Okay. So my daughter Cora is five and many of you know her. She has this friend, Malachi, and they've known each other since they were babies. And I have some cute pictures. <laughs> pulling the pastor move and pulling my kid in here. <laughs> so Malachi's mother is Lucy. She's a friend of mine. Um, she actually used to be a part of this church and now serves at River Life with her husband, Chris. 
but they're both still very much connected to our church and um, kind of considering considered part of our extended church family. Lucy and I were pregnant at the same time, and after Cor and Malachi were born, uh, we would meet up just about weekly for play dates. Um, so Cor and Malachi have known each other basically their entire lives and have developed this sweet little friendship. Um, you can do the next one, Wesley. You see? So yeah, throughout time, and this is more recently over here. Um, so they've attended school together for the past couple of years, uh, preschool, and now they're in um, kindergarten. We're homeschooling, but they go to this homeschool program together. So, um, so Lucy and I have started to work out this carpool arrangement for the program since we live close to each other and this program's a little bit of a drive, you know, why are we both driving there? Um, and um, Cor and Malachi just love this. So uh, when I drive them, they sit in the third row seat of my SUV in the back by themselves. Yeah. This one, y'all, this is the first time that they saw each other post-COVID in person. They like had FaceTime and had window dates through the window. I know, I know. So yeah, so they love this. They, they love sitting in the back of the SUV and they have just the most adorable conversations back there. Remember, they're five, okay? So I, like literally, I wish I had a microphone back there and could just play it for you guys. I don't. Um, so there's one such conversation that happened, um, not this past week, but the week before, that I'm gonna do my best to recreate for you, okay? <clears throat> so, so, Malachi, we're best friends, right? Yeah, definitely. We're gonna be best friends forever. Yeah, until we die. <laughs> so Cora, the sweet optimist, just kinda slides right past that one. One day we can marry each other and then we can be together forever. Yeah, let's get married. But wait, we can't marry each other because we aren't part of the same family. Well, actually, people that are part of the same family can't get married. You have to be in, from different families to get married. Oh, then we can be in the same family and be together forever. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be part of the same family someday. Which is so funny because, you know, as kids, when, you know, got the cute baby pictures of them and stuff, we're like, oh, if they get married someday, that'd be so cute. So I'm just cracking up here. And then, you know, like as conversations amongst five-year-olds quickly devolved into pooping in each other's drinks. So <laughs> the cuteness ended pretty quickly. But something about that whole interaction between them kept playing in my head when I read Genesis 2 and was preparing to preach on it. See, Kor and Malachi are at that age where they recognize there are differences between girls and boys, and they have some ideas about what being a boy or a girl means from a societal standpoint. Um, and those differences do come out to play a little bit when they're um, you know, playing together. Lately, I've noticed that Malachi wants to pretend to be a panther all the time, and Kor wants to be a princess, and they have to kind of negotiate that. Malachi also has a little sister who's you know, just a couple years younger, and so I'm like, one day, you know, you're not going to be the thing anymore. Your sister's going to be the thing, and I feel like it's already coming. Um, but at the end of the day, they just want to be together. They just want to play together. They want to be friends forever. And there's something so sweet and innocent about this. Um, their talk about getting married and figuring out the nuances of how, like, familiar families and family relationships work 
uh, it's just filled with this optimism about the world and the future, right? Like they're not gonna go through puberty and never wanna see each other or you know, go to different colleges, whatever. And it just screams pre-fall life to me. Chapter two concludes with, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And the word shame here, again, is not meant to have the same negative connotations that our English word does. Um, a better translation of it might be unabashed or free from judgment. So I look at this lovely little narrative, this creation story at the, up until this point and how it ends. We have fertile land being cared for by humanity. There's ample provision. There is beauty. There's an equal and harmonious partnership between man and woman unity and connection between them and all of creation. And they're living fully exposed, fully seen, but without shame. And just like I so desperately want that sweet little friendship between five-year-olds to stay that way forever, I also sometimes wish the narrative just ended here, that this was the reality of life for all of us. But alas, we have to turn the page. So next week, Pastor Justin has the very unfortunate job of preaching on Genesis chapter 3. I do not envy him. But I already know that even there, there is so much hope to be found because these are only the first three pages of a much bigger story, one in which we get to play a part. So in closing today, um, we're going to have communion. And... Um, couple of things that I, you know, didn't tie in, but that I think are important as we move to the space of communion um, is when we think about this river of life springing up in the desert, when we get to Jesus's story in John, that's mentioned with Jesus. Those that follow Jesus and know Jesus will have a river of life springing up in them. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life and the water of life, and those that eat and drink from me will never go hungry or thirst again. So while Eden is this thing that maybe doesn't exist anymore, in some ways it is still something we are offered to be a part of. God is providing for us in a very real way. So as you come forward today and you take a piece of the bread, which is hard to... And dip it into the cup and remember what Jesus has done for us. May you just have a little Eden moment here and pretend the world is great. Because it is. Because Jesus came. So I'm going to pass this off. And if you have not had communion with us, um, yeah, you'll come over here. Just one. And take um, a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and eat it. Um, and you go kind of by row through here and then back. Kind of. Just follow the first people they know. Um, but I'm going to close us in prayer. Okay. Lord God, we thank you that you created things to be good, to be great, that you created us for each other for community, for connection. You created us to be equal and to serve together, Lord. And I thank you that here at Love we do that. 
And Lord, while we mourn what is lost, we look forward to what is to come, Lord, and in what you're already doing. You have not abandoned your creation. You have been with us the entire time. And so, Lord, here in this space, may we worship your name, and may we find those moments in our hearts where everything is right and aligned with you, Lord. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.